Thank you for joining us for the Sunrise Message of the Week podcast. This podcast is part of the Sunrise Podcast Network. For more information on Sunrise Christian Center and our sponsors, the Sun Network and Seattle Bible College, check out our website at isunrise.org. Please help us get the word out by subscribing, downloading, rating, and commenting on our podcast. The more you interact with our content, the more people will hear it. This week, Pastor John continues the Kingdom Heart of a Disciple series with a message on mercy and purity. We're going to talk about the Kingdom Heart of a Disciple. We're going to talk about our Sermon on the Mount series, and this has been such a life-giving and challenging and trying text to study from and to get into, and I'm, I believe that it's also, it's a now word for what God has for us in this hour. Last Sunday, uh, Dr. List gave a powerful prophetic word to the church. God really lifted him up into a heavenly vision about Sunrise Christian Center and the future of our ministry. And if you missed last Sunday, you really need to go check it out. It's very, very important. I believe God gave past, uh, Dr. List a vision that encapsulates the heart that Grace and I have shared in our vision. And that's that we're moving from a cruise ship to a battleship. And people are finding their positions. And we're going to, people are finding their positions to make a difference. And the, and the glory of God, the presence of God manifesting in his glory is going to be the thing that really motivates us and drives us. And that's why our emphasis on prayer and the presence of the Lord is so huge in this hour. But I also believe that the transition from a cruise ship to a battleship has to do with this whole concept of what it means to be a, a disciple-making church, a disciple-making movement. And that's why we're on this series this this fall and this year of make is the new go. We're talking about making disciples. We're going to go into cities and nations as God leads us and travel restrictions lighten up in the future. Uh, but we're going to also make disciples everywhere we go. That's the primary mandate that Jesus gave his church was that the church, not just that individuals would make individual disciples, but that the church as a community of faith uh, together corporately would be a disciple making entity that we would build family, marriage, uh, we would build singles, we would build people uh, in community that would make disciples and reproduce disciples that would reproduce churches and churches that would reproduce disciples that would make disciples that would reproduce re and plant churches. And there, was a, there wasn't just an individual mandate, but it was, a, it was something that God gave us as a community to do together. And so please check out that prophetic word and vision that the Lord gave Dr. List last week. It was very powerful and encouraging as well, his whole message. And so you don't want to miss out on that. Thank God for a soldier, a veteran in the Lord uh, that's a part of our church body. And so we're going to pick up the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And there is eight or nine Beatitudes, depending on if you count the last two Beatitudes as one or two. Uh, but we are we're getting through these each week, and then we'll continue the Sermon on the Mount here in, in a few weeks ahead. But today we're going to talk about mercy and purity. Mercy and purity. And as we go into this message on mercy and purity in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I want to just remind you that last time we shared, we talked about meekness. I shared about meekness and about righteousness. And we learned that meekness is not weakness. Uh, 
And we learn that righteousness is, is about the quality of being right or just. It's about right standing. And it's really the greatest need of the human heart. And we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness that we may be filled. And true righteousness is only found in Christ alone and what he can do for us. And so we're going to jump into mercy and purity. But one of the things that I see as an overarching theme here in uh, the Beatitudes is that we're, lo we're looking at a person, we're looking at a disciple, right? You're a disciple, I'm a disciple. Hopefully we're followers, we're learners of Jesus or we're learning what it is to become one and I hope you'll make that decision soon if you haven't already. But that we are, we're looking at these, these instructions of Jesus about being poor in spirit and being a mourner and being, uh, being ri seeking righteousness and being meek. And, and now we're going to look at being merciful and being pure in heart. And all of these qualities have to do with being a person that's emotionally strong. And sometimes in the church, we only, we only and in a culture, we only prize and reward people for being dominant, aggressive, assertive, climbing the hierarchy, enforcing their will on somebody else. But what we look at in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount is someone who's emotionally resilient. The scripture said that you're stronger, the proverb said you're stronger if you could rule your own spirit than if you could take a city. And what Jesus is laying out for us is people that are inwardly strong. And sometimes we want to have outward influence, but we don't want to be inwardly strong. Or we, we, we push so hard for outward change in a family, in a culture, in a city, in an industry, but we don't work on the inner quality of our heart. And I love what, what Jesus is doing here because he's doing surgery on our hearts. That's why we call this series the kingdom heart of a disciple. Is that discipleship really starts in the heart. It really starts with us um, processing our emotions. And I don't know about you, but I believe a lot of people during COVID-19 have had the fires and the pressure and the stress and the irritants and the things that, you know, the heat's been turned up. People are working together. People aren't getting their break. They're not able to socialize as much. People are isolated. People have got kids in the home. People are forced into some kind of homeschool situation that maybe they weren't prepared for as much as others were. And, and these fires and these pressures start to manifest the things in our heart. And I know that sometimes, you know, people are like, you're replacing how many staff members at one time, like other pastors? And I'm like, 2020, just be in 2020, right? Like, there it goes. Like, we just don't even know what tomorrow holds, and we probably aren't going to be that surprised. They're like, man, just getting through 2020, I can't wait for these five years to be over, you know? Like, there's been so many things. The memes are just killer right now. And, you know, there's so many things, though, that uh, are just all packed in to this one year. And those pressures are revealing things that are going on inside of our hearts. And we are not to be led by our emotions as believers, but we are to become a people who are not just spiritually strong or just have faith and just act assertive or just say the right things. We're, we're a people to let God get to the quality of our hearts, to that to we become people that are, have, have healthy emotions and we learn how to process things and we learn how to reflect Christ well. And you've heard me say this probably many times before, but it's often one of my prayers is that the church wouldn't just stand up for Christ, but we would stand up like Christ. Christ. And it's, I'm hard pressed to see Jesus pulling all his disciples together. All right, we're going to all protest the occupation of Rome. And you, okay, you're going to get that. You're going to get this out and you're going to do that. And, and you're, you know, like he, he, you look at, uh, you look at Jesus's uh, exchange with Pilate and it's like the most perfect example of meekness, of strength under control. You look at who has the dominance there. 
Oh, Pilate has the authority to have him executed, right? But who exhibits meekness? Who, who exhibits the, the who ex- exhibits true leadership? Who exhibits true dominance, if you will? It's through submission and it's through serving and it's through taking a different road. And he doesn't back down. He's not, he doesn't cower in fear. He's not afraid. He doesn't back down, but he's like, look, you're gonna do what you think you need to do, but there's a greater purpose that's going on and I know what it is and you can't break me. (laughs) You can't break me. You can't cause me to beg for my life. You can't cause me to live in fear, right? And we wanna be a people that don't just stand up for Christ, but we stand up like him in this hour. And so as we're going through the Beatitudes, we're getting into uh, mercy and purity today. And we're in Matthew 5, 7 through 8. And Jesus says this, Blessed blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Father God, I pray for this time we have to talk about mercy and purity today, that you would do a work in our heart that you, would, that you would tear down idols, that you would tear down false beliefs, that you would cause us to become sober-minded, that you would cause us to be a people that love mercy, that love purity, that love the things that are of your heart. And God, in this time of pressure, I believe that you're trying to expose things in us that you might heal us, that you might establish us, that you might mature us, that you might grow us. So I pray that we wouldn't lose heart. I pray that we, would, that we would sense your mercy, Lord, that even where there's areas we need to turn from, even there's areas where, that we need to get right and get in alignment, Lord God, that we would sense your mercy so that we wouldn't lose heart, that we wouldn't strive in our own strength or stresses, Lord God, but we would let your spirit have his way, Lord God. Let, let our heart, let our spirit, man, let our soul today, our emotions, our mind, our will, let it be like a tablet that you could come and write on our heart, your word, and your truth, Lord God, that we would reflect you to a world around us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So let's talk about mercy. Let's talk about mercy. What is Mercy. Well, according to the New International Commentary on the New Testament, mercy is closely linked with forgiveness, but is broader here than just the forgiveness of specific offenses. It is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from the other's point of view and is not quick to take offense or to gloat over others' shortcomings. The prime characteristic of love, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Mercy sets aside society's assumption that it is honorable to demand revenge. Well said. That's why I quoted it. What is mercy? It's this quality of love that includes forgiveness and has a sense of not taking revenge. It was James, one of the uh, letters that was written in the New Testament that says that mercy triumphs over judgment. As I referred to earlier at the end of the worship time, that when God talks about his character and his nature, he says that he's holy, of course, and he says that he's righteous and, and, and all of these things. But he says when it comes to describing his mercy, he says, I am the God who is rich in mercy. Is somebody thankful for mercy today? I love that kind of song. It's like, that's what mercy did for me. I was like, come on, we need mercy. I need mercy. The promises of the Psalms is that his mercies are new every morning. 
that as sure as the sun rises every day. And from my house, I see the sunrise. I used to always be closer to it. It seemed like the sunset. But in the mornings, I see the sunrise. And as sure as that sun comes up every single morning, so sure are God's mercies new every day. So every single day, you can have a happy thought. Every single day, you can say, I am blessed because God's mercy is new this morning. When my feet hit the floor, I'm like, thank you, God. Your mercies are new. Yesterday had some trouble. Yesterday had some struggle. But today is a day that started in mercy. And you can wash your soul in that truth. You can wash your spirit in the word of God every single day. It's a day of mercy. It's a day to be forgiven. It's a day for, for God to look at me and give me the benefit of the doubt. Of course, he's holy and he doesn't wink at sin or compromise, but he sees what we're going through. He understands the context and the feelings. That's what Hebrews talks about, the type of high priest he is. is that's why he can, he can give us mercy and grace in our time of need because he knows what it's like to go through suffering, to go through temptation, to have sin knocking on your door. He knows exactly what that's like. He never caved to it, but he felt the pressures. And so he has mercy for you today. He's got mercy for you. And so Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, happy, full, full of a content life are those that are merciful. In other words, those that show mercy to others are going to be happy and satisfied and live the full kind of life. For they will be shown mercy. It's the boomerang of mercy. <laughs> You give mercy out, guess what? You get back. And there's all these promises in the Beatitudes. If you're poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you, uh, if you are a mourner, then you're going to get comfort, right? If you're meek, you inherit the earth. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. We see all these different promises attached uh, to the Beatitudes. But this one is what you give is what you get. And this is, the first, uh, this is the first of at least a few, if not several instances in the Sermon on the Mount where we're going to start to get a little picture of the measure that you use is the way you get it back. Well, how you treat others is the way you should want to be treated, right? So it's, if the, the mercy you give is the mercy you get back. It's the boomerang effect. You launch it out there, it circles back around. Isn't it amazing that we want, we usually give ourselves a pass, but it's easy to judge other people? But we don't give ourselves a pass when we judge other people. Because we get the mercy back to the measure of the mercy that we give. It's the boomerang of mercy. Come on, it's amazing. And if you give out your mercy, it's not like you're running out of it. It comes back, baby. If you show mercy, you will be shown mercy. It's amazing. It's the first illusion of the principle of reciprocity that Jesus would continue to teach. Let's not be harsh on the sins of others and give ourselves a pass. Jesus is going to have some more for us on that topic in this great sermon that we go through week by week. The passive verb here speaks primarily not of how other people will respond to the merciful person, but of how God will deal with those who live by his standards. It's not necessarily that when you show someone mercy that that person will show mercy back to you. There's no guarantee that people will always respond in kind. There's a better chance of it when you show somebody unconditional love and you show them forgiveness when they deserve judgment, there's a good chance that that could affect their heart. 
But this isn't what the promise is. The promise is that God looks after the quality of your heart being merciful towards others and he is going to be merciful towards you in his dealings with you. Come on, who could use that kind of favor from the Lord today? Can I get a witness? You may not get mercy back from the one you show it to, but you'll get it from God. We reap what we sow. God is watching over the quality of our heart. And when he's pleased, there's a blessing and a reward that's attached to it. And when we're struggling to show mercy, let God come in and do a little surgery today by his spirit. And help us be a merciful person. And this is why, this is why the governments of man can never reproduce the kingdom of God. Because the government can only institute change through force. Through coercion. And there is a biblical standard for how much a government should be able to, for what issues governments should bear the sword for and where they should bring discipline against evildoers. And that is biblical and that is godly. But there's something that we get to do to be God's representatives in, the ch- uh, in and through the church. And that's being a people of not only righteousness, because if you're just righteous but you got no mercy... <laughs> Or like the disciples when they're rolling up with Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you see this wicked city? Let's call down fire from heaven and let's just torch it. These unrighteous fill in the blankety blank, right? These unrighteous whatever, that's what they're doing. That's the spirit they're coming out of. And Jesus is last to rebuke them and say, you don't even know what spirit you're of. You think you, that's what would solve the problem, but yet God has a heart of mercy for people. He's got a heart of mercy You know, the world doesn't understand this very well. This is one of the most distinct qualities of the Christian faith. That's the power of being a people of mercy that extend forgiveness and give people the benefit of the doubt. There is a young man in here real recently that was weeping with me after one of our services. He's coming through a lot of personal struggles and he's overcome. He's doing really well. And he just comes and he weeps very often through our services, through worship, through the word. And he said, Pastor John, he said, I want to tell you how much this place is meant to me. He said, everybody in the world keeps telling me I can't change. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. This is where I'm stuck in my bad habits and my, my, my ex-girlfriend, my friends. And he said, but when I come here, you guys have mercy. You guys believe that I can change, that I can be forgiven. And I was like, come on, you guys, this is one of the greatest qualities we have is that we don't hold people's sins against them because we realize that we've had our, we could have had our sins held against us, but God sent his son to die for us to show us mercy when we deserve judgment. So we ought to be a people who don't just judge people according to the flesh. This is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. I don't regard people according to the flesh. No, I don't look at people outwardly and size them up and be like, oh, look at those tats. Look at those piercings. Look at those affiliations. We judge so often from the outside. We are so guilty on the right and the left of this nation of identity politics that nobody can sit down and have a real conversation. Even in the church, it's so sad. As soon as you say one thing, people judge you. Oh, did you, what did they say? What did the pastor do? Oh, I think he's being motivated by white guilt. Oh, I think he's being motivated by this. Oh, I think he's being motivated. I think, oh no, is he slipping into this? And instead of talking to people and having mercy and using a measure on someone that you want used on you, you just go to the worst possible extreme and make people your enemy. This is not the way of the follower of Jesus. The way of the follower of Jesus is not to uh, attribute sins to somebody 
or make premature judgment. And we are, to, we are to discern righteous judgment. Again, we're to be a people of righteousness. Come on. Uh, it was E. Stanley Jones that said, if you have righteousness without mercy, you're harsh, but, or something to this effect, but if you've got mercy without righteousness, you're just mushy. And, and you're just going to give false love. And, and a false love is no love at all. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices in the truth. So whenever you got a parade for things that are iniquitous, that's, and they call it love, that's not love. That's not love. Love doesn't rejoice in evil. So you got to know what you got. There, there are rails for love to run on. Love isn't just whatever I feel. Mercy isn't just whatever I feel. It's about not pre. It's not about not judging prematurely, and getting to know the heart of people, and having conversation, coming to understanding. And, and yes, when you need to make a righteous judgment and say someone's in sin, they're in rebellion, they're in compromise, they've got, they're idolatrous, or that's a wicked ideology, you need to make those righteous judgments. But we, we should be a people of mercy, that we believe that forgiveness is real in Jesus, then it makes a difference. Think about the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Just one, all he needed was one meeting with Jesus. We see it in the headlines all the time right now. Former this, appointed for that. This person's a former this, former that. Can you believe it? And the world's like, oh. It's like, well, I'm a former pornographer, luster, pervert. <laughs> and I'm the senior pastor of this church. My dad's a former drug addict, hippie, called paranoid, schizophrenic. I mean, I don't know, you could probably add a few labels if he told them, I won't tell on his sins, but you, you could find out from him. Former this, former, yeah, he's been forgiven. I say some of our best, our, our best ministers are ex-convicts and ex-addicts because sometimes the only job you can get is being a pastor of a church. Because <laughs> we believe in mercy. We believe in forgiveness. I'm joking a little bit, right? But seriously, we believe in mercy. We believe that the blood of Jesus wipes the slate clean. So therefore, we can show mercy to other people. Somebody's coming here and they're, and we're not a perfect church. We don't get it right all the time. But somebody came here and, and, it was, and they're going through some difficult life challenges and circumstances. And they're like, I keep waiting for the, they're like, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, every, at every corner, you keep loving us. At every turn, they're like, in my past church experiences, we'd be driven out because we are, we're failing, we're struggling in these areas in life. And uh, what he's saying is you're showing us mercy. And we think that maybe if you're stringing us along, because then finally you'll say, you'll run out of mercy. Now, it's very important for a church to practice discipline at times when somebody's damaging other believers or taking advantage of other people. You do have to at times say, I'm sorry, but you're not a wounded sheep. You're a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're not welcome here. Right, but we're always, even in those, even in those times of discipline, discipline is to be redemptive so that we might Show mercy if there's a change of heart. Mercy is not just a feeling of pity for someone, but there is a strength and a bravery to it as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his biography Bonhoeffer, it says that in uh, there were some, some big events that happened in Germany in, on November 9th, 1938. And... 1938, and Bonhoeffer spoke of Jesus Christ as the man for others, often spoke as Je of Jesus Christ as the quote-unquote man for others. 
as selflessness incarnate, loving and serving others to the absolute exclusion of his needs and desires. Similarly, the church of Jesus Christ existed for others. And since Christ was Lord over the whole world, not just the church, the church existed to reach out beyond itself, to speak out for the voiceless, to defend the weak and fatherless. In 1938, Bonhoeffer's views on this subject were particularly sharpened as a result of the disturbing events of November 9th. It was now for the first time that his gaze was in a new way directed away from his own trials and towards the trials of God's people, the Jews. It finally came to such a bad place in the church and in society, in the German culture, that he realized it wasn't enough to just to try to maintain status for the church and made sure the church had their own freedoms. But now it was the time to stand up for another group of people that were oppressed. And that's part of what mercy does. And I think maybe this is what he had in mind was these events when he wrote in The Cost of Discipleship. He said, as if their own needs and their own desires were not enough. Speaking of the merciful, they take upon themselves the distress and humiliation and sin of others. They have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety. They go out and seek all. They go out and seek all who are enmeshed in the toils of sin and guilt. No distress is too great, no sin too appalling for their pity. If any man falls into disgrace, the merciful will sacrifice their own honor to shield him and take his shame upon themselves. Sometimes we look at a merciful person as just a bubbling emotional mess that just kind of cries over everybody else. Oh, I'm so sorry. And you know, there is definitely a compassion for people that are hurting that comes out of the heart of someone with a gift of compassion or the merciful, but there is a courage to mercy to where you run and you cling to the downtrodden and the oppressed and the broken and you put yourself next to them and say, I will stand with you. And when everybody else scoffs, scoffs and scorns and judges and, and, and says, this is who you are, you stand and say, no, I believe you can change. I believe there's hope for you. I believe there's value on your life. I'm going to come and I'm going to shield you from the judgments and the, and, the, and, and the pain. That's what the merciful does, is that we don't count other people's sins against us the way we wouldn't want God to count our sins against us. There's good news today. Come on, somebody. The boomerang effect of mercy. If you show mercy, you get it right back. Let's be a people of mercy. Let's be a people that treat others the way that we want to be treated. Let's try to give other people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes that's one of the best ways to train yourself to show mercy. I remember being at a summer camp, and our camp speaker, I think you have to listen carefully because uh, I don't want to create a uh, a false teaching, right? <laughs> but I want you to, I think if you hear the heart of it and you understand the concept is very, very powerful. But often when he would help people walk through forgiveness, he would tell them to ask God for a reason why this person was so hurting or so mean or so cruel. And if you could see what was going on in their heart, maybe it would allow you to start to have mercy for the person that was mistreating you. And I think it's very powerful. I don't think God ever made, God never excuses abuse or, or evil behavior towards you and just, oh, it's okay. That one's okay. You get a pass. It doesn't matter. We all go through hard stuff. No, no, no. God's the judge of all and nothing escapes his sight. But sometimes when we're trying to find a reason for mercy, maybe if you had, you know, an alcoholic parent and there's a lot of bitterness and anger over the way they treated you, if God could show you into their heart, what did they go through? What did they lack? How did their parents treat them? What trauma did they go through? 
One of my um, extended relatives that I'm not directly related to uh, was one time just sitting there, and I'm kind of outside in this family environment. I'm not immediate family or blood related, and so I'm not really like, I don't know, I'm like the outsider, you know. So I go and sit in, and all, and all of a sudden, uh, there's like a commercial or something that comes on the TV about PTSD. And the man that was talking to me was kind of a gruff, cruel, harsh man, very, very angry, you know. Um, and God, had, he had opened his heart later in his life to the Lord, but still kind of had those rough edges. But you could see God doing a work in his heart. And this PT, PTSD type commercial comes on and he said, I didn't know that's what happened to my dad. He said, but when he came back from the war, he would just come in and he would just pound my mom. And he would start cursing and screaming. And it was like he went into another state. And I didn't know. They called it shell-shocked when I was a kid. But they didn't know what it was. And he starts getting all teary-eyed. And I'm thinking, this is like, he doesn't open up to anybody. And I'm like, why me? You know, like, I'm just sitting there. And um, I'm just, he's like, he's like, I wasn't able to forgive him until I understood what he went through. You know, and so very often it's how do we see things through the eyes of the others? It doesn't excuse their behavior. But when we can see the pain or the lack of mercy that they've received in their lives, then maybe we could come to a point where we realize we can forgive and we can demonstrate mercy. And that's part of the process that God will often use to allow us to become whole, is to start to being able to extend mercy to others where they deserve judgment and to realize the mercy that God has on each one of us. Amen? Mercy and purity. We're going to talk about purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity in heart has to do with being clean on the inside and in our motives to be without mixture or single in our focus. Purity of heart has a lot to do with godliness, not just in our behavior, but in our desires. My daughter's in a speech and debate team, and so we were visiting her, her, uh, her class and her, her training time last week, and so it's, it's in a Christian uh, speech and debate club, so they go against other Christians, and then one of the categories they do debates or speeches for is apologetics and the defense of the Christian faith, and so they have all these different topics that they have to write their cards and write their little uh, point of view out, and so uh, Haley wrote out um, one on what does it mean to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we have been working with her on that one a little bit, and she's been going back and forth, and she's a very natural uh, communicator um, as, a, as, a young, uh, as a young speech giver, debater. And so she gets up, and she's, like, talking about, uh, to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, it means that, you know, you belong to God. And she's like, basically, if God wouldn't do something, you don't do it either. <laughs> and everybody laughed, you know, like, because she was just, like, so, so blunt. And, uh, and I thought, that's pretty funny. That's kind of a good way, actually, though, honey. Uh, if God wouldn't be a part of something, you shouldn't be a part of it either, right? If you just want to cut it to the quick, what does it mean to be a pure of heart? It means to have a heart, a heart that reflects godliness, that, that reflects his character, that demonstrates his desires, and his values. E. Stanley Jones said that, uh, or he sees that the Beatitudes were in order for a specific reason, and that the connections to each one of them are a key to understanding the whole. He said that the seeing of God is not through self-emptying alone, but the self-emptying is in order to a filling with positive qualities of vicarious suffering, of meekness, of hunger, and thirst for righteousness, of a tender mercy, and a purity of heart. All these qualities fit for one finer 
for one final relationship with man so that God is seen not apart from life, but in the midst of human relationships. Seeing God thus means fullness, not emptiness. And you look at church history, and God preserved, of course, a lot of the church. Uh, uh, he preserved the faithful that stayed devoted to Christ through some of the monasteries and things like that. But if you look through church history, a lot of people believe that to be holy or pure of heart, you had to withdraw, and you had to disengage, and you had to be, go to a monastery, you had to go to a desert. You look at many world religions, and they teach you emptiness. Come to a place of nirvana, of nothingness. And so life is a series of achievements to get to this place where there's nothing, emptiness. There's a huge, of course, movement of transcendental meditation. You can get meditation. Apps. There's a huge wave of yoga that it's hit the United States the last um, several years. And it's all about emptying yourself and, and coming to this place of emptiness. That is not the Christian message, people of God. The, the Christian message is purity of heart has to do with fullness or completeness, not emptiness. And yes, there is an emptying of, of self-will and self-desire where we want to deny the flesh. But it's not, a, it's not a denial for the sake of emptiness. It's a denial so that we can have the fullness of God. In fact, Jesus warned us. He said, you're going to get cleaned out from a demon. You're going to get cleaned out from something evil and you're going to be empty. Watch out if your house is too empty because if you're in empty little space, seven more demons are going to come back and you're going to be worse off later than you are to start with. So we're not after emptiness, we're after fullness. And so Jones is saying there's this connection between being merciful. You can't be pure in heart. It's easy to be pure in heart if you're all by your lonesome self praying every day. You might go a little stir crazy in isolation from time to time, but I mean, who are you judging and getting angry at when there's nobody else to talk to? I want to see the pure in heart when they got four kids running around <laughs> doing homeschool while you're trying to work from home and everybody's going crazy and, and you're getting who knows what kind of messages and, and things in the mail and you still got to pay the bills and you still got to do this and something else happens and something breaks in the house. And I mean, this is real life, right? And the context here is if you're comforting those who mourn and you're, you're showing mercy to those who need it, then purity of heart isn't something that just manifests, you know, when you sing I surrender all. It's like now in real life, in the fires of life, when your heart gets squeezed, does purity come out? Purity of heart. But I also think purity is not just what manifests in human relationships, although that's a good litmus, part of a good litmus test for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the pure in heart, they are wholly absorbed by the contemplation of God. They shall see God whose hearts have become a reflection of the image of Jesus. There is, there is a part of it that should manifest in human relationships. There is another part of the purity, the pure in heart, see God. So it should be our, there should be a beholding of him of his character, of his nature, of his beauty, of his worth, of his majesty, of his, his transcendence and his, his far surpassing worth should be something that we behold in our hearts that causes us to want to purify ourselves. Jesus would very often condemn outward signs of purity where hearts were far from him with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. He's like, I got... I got no time for that. <laughs> you know, ain't nobody got time for that. Look, at you're putting on this show. You put on the ceremonial washings and all these things that you do outwardly, but your heart's far from me. And reading in our Bible reading plan uh, has been so powerful uh, this time of year as elections are happening and so many crazy things are happening in the nation. I, I've actually, I've never enjoyed reading the prophets so much because uh, I just see it as so relevant to the times 
that we live in. And, and uh, so reading Ezekiel, Ezekiel called, uh, God called out through Ezekiel, the, uh, the false prophets of their day that they're saying, oh, people are saying peace, peace, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. And he's like, don't listen to people that are prophesying out of their own imaginations. He's like, what's happening with the people of God is that they're putting up these whitewashed walls, but they're flimsy. And as soon as something tr some trouble comes, they're going to topple over. Similar to how Jesus said that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. You can, make, you can make a coffin as pretty as you like it, but it's still full of dead men's bones. That's what Jesus was warning the religious leaders. So it's like, it doesn't matter how spiritual we look, if we can do the worship dance and we know all the motions and we can jump up and down and we could act so spiritual outwardly, but we could have so much mixture, so much corruption on the inside. And that doesn't impress God at all. My dad would always tell me growing up, son, we're going to be very surprised on Judgment Day. Dad, look at that church. Do you see what they're doing? Man, they're growing like crazy. He's like, son, something's not right. I'm like, are you sure? Are you judging them? Are you jealous? No, just kidding. And he'd say, son, things can look very impressive on the outside, but everything will be revealed on Judgment Day. And you know what? Oftentimes, those places don't even exist anymore. Those churches that were some of the fastest growing have withered and tumbled. Because if we're not built on purity of heart, if we're not built on righteousness, if we're not built on mercy, if we're not built on the, the you know, we, our gifts are important, but our character quality is way more important. I believe as Graham Cook and many others have said similar things, you can destroy with your character what you build with your gift. What does God care about the most? is that he sees the reflection of his son in us. That's what he cares about the most. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Because maybe he's turned up the fire so that purity could be revealed. I believe he wants us to fulfill our destiny, and our destinies and our callings are important. Our gifts are important. What we do is important, but who we are is of the utmost importance. We don't want to fake it till we make it. Come on, that's horrible advice. I mean, yeah, it's true that sometimes you've got to obey when you don't feel like it. But to, to keep faking things or keep acting like putting on a show. Dr. List told me about some world leaders that have incredible influence right now. And very early in their ministry, he said, I helped them pack their suitcase. I, was, I saw their little car. All their belongings could fit in the back of one little tiny car. And he said, at a certain point, they quit listening to my counsel. And people started telling them, just fake it till you make it. Act rich until you are rich. And their church grew up huge to this huge number and they lost their marriage. All these scandals, all this stuff happened. And it was like he remembered when they had the pure heart. He would tell me that. I remember when, when they had the heart just to love God, just to help the hurting and the broken. And it wasn't about your image. It wasn't about what you appeared like, what TV shows you were on and who got to interview you and how many book sales you had. It was just about loving and helping people. Jesus, help us, help me to be a people that are of pure heart, that we have pure motives. It's very possible that Jesus is alluding to Psalm 24, scholars believe, that it, it, it reflects, uh, this Sermon on the Mount reflects another sermon, another message about the hill of the Lord in Psalm 24. And in Psalm 24, the psalmist said, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. 
This is the invitation of the Lord, that if you would become a person of a pure heart, you get to see and behold God. And I love what Psalm 24 says, that this is the generation of Jacob, of those who seek your face. Because in this whole invitation to purity that the psalmist makes, he gives us Jacob as the character that we're to be like to be pure people. And Jacob's name means supplanter, means manipulator, the one that's a little bit crooked or a little bit shady. You know that child of yours that's trying, they got some side hustle going on, like they're asking you a question, they're helping do the dishes, and they got some little secret thing going on to try to get in your good graces because they're about to let the other shoe drop and tell you what really happened or appeal for mercy or, to, or maybe not tell you what happened to try to see if you don't notice and you're like, what's going on? I'm getting shined on here right now by my kid. You know what I mean? Like, how do they learn this stuff? But he's saying that we're to be the ones that are pure, the ones that are pure of heart, that we're to seek the face of God like Jacob did. So I got good news for you. If you're a little bit crooked, a little bit manipulative, if you got a little bit of problems or skeletons in your closet, that is not a disqualifier for you to live in purity of heart heart. What happened was Jacob, in spite of his name, in spite of his identity, he sought the face of the Lord. He sought, he was changed by the Lord. And he became a man. He became a man who should become a model for us. It's powerful. But who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may behold God the pure in heart? What does the psalm say? Those who don't lift up their soul to an idol nor swear deceitfully. Idolatry is the major issue that causes us to stray from a pure heart. We see this over and over again in the prophets. We see it in the teachings of the New Testament. We see it in Paul's letters. We, we see how we're to cleanse ourselves from idols. We see it in John's epistle. We see it over and over again in the scriptures as, God doesn't want any other gods to be before him. Of course, that's one of the Ten Commandments, but this is, this is echoed over and over and over again, is that the people's heart, the people of God's heart is, is wooed by other lovers. There was a, just a, a large in-depth study that Barna shared. I don't think he actually did this study, but they started asking Christians about Orthodox Christianity. Uh, 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 40, 50%, I won't remember all the numbers, but I just saw the stats this weekend. And 40 to 50% of Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but that he's a force. Uh, many Christians, I think it's over 50%, believe that Jesus did not live a sinless life. Um, many Christians believe that the Bible is, uh, I think it's 40 some percent of Christians in America believe that the abortion, that uh, the Bible is ambiguous when it comes to the issue of abortion. Uh, uh, 40 some percent, I believe it was as well, believe that there's nothing wrong with same sex marriage. And these are all people that profess Christ, profess to be an evangelical Christian in the United States of America. And we are being driven by American culture. I would submit to you on the right and on the left, we are being driven more by culture than we are by the scriptures and by the spirit of God. And we got to repent and we got to come back. We got we to gotta get away from these idolatrous ideas that are, not, um, that are not from the heart of God, that are not represented in scripture. And so if you want to be pure of heart and you want to behold God, you got to let God topple the idols that are in your life. You've got to let God come after the, the other lovers. And that's what we see in the prophetic imagery of the prophets in the Old Testament is that they very often liken the people of Israel to a lover who's going after other lovers instead of the one true lover they're supposed to have, their creator, the Yahweh, the one true God. We cannot compromise. We cannot be a people of mixture. 
We cannot love anything else more than God. We cannot let any identity or ideology reign above what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So we, are, we are talking about the kingdom heart of a disciple. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. And whoever wins this next election will be subservient to my king. My king is Jesus. And his throne reigns above every throne and over every kingdom. And I'm not afraid of the future because I know who holds my future. I know that he's not up for election every four years. I know that he reigns and he judges the affairs of men. And that he will make all things right as his reign covers the earth. We cannot give our devotion. We cannot compromise. We must be a people that are devoted to Jesus. We must be a Jesus people. When you look at the message of purity in Scripture, it's a very trying message. How could I be without mixture in my affections? How could I be without mixture in my desires? And just as soon as you think you're doing good, you just start reading the Bible every day and letting the Spirit talk to you. And it's amazing how things will surface and you'll realize, oh. In the survey, they said, most Christians don't confess their sins anymore because that 70 some percent of Christians in America believe that people are not born into sin or they're not naturally evil, that they're born good. Wrong. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Why do we need forgiveness if we're good? That's one of the questions I wonder. Everybody's guilty. Going to psychiatrists, psychologists, and, and, some, and we should go. Some, I've been to a counselor, and they've tremendously helped my life, a Christian counselor. But more than that, but, but if everybody needs all this help, then why is everybody basically good? Well, they're not the ones that did anything wrong. It's the people that did things wrong against them. Well, if all these people are hurt, that means lots of other people did things wrong to hurt them, which means they're not basically, we're not all basically good. Right? We're not, we're not just, you know, there is a, there is a innocent quality of a child's heart that we say, kids are just so pure in heart. But like, come on, they're not really actually pure in heart. <laughs> Some of them, they really need to get saved. Good save. I'm like, I can't wait till you're of the age for baptism because we need that old person to die. We need to rise in new life soon. <laughs> Hold them under a little longer, please. <laughs> Make sure the old man's really dead before we bring him up. Don't be afraid. We are doing some baptisms at the end of 11 a.m. today. We'll be good. We'll pull him right back out of the water. You know, the time under does not, you know, create the quality of the conversion or of the transformation, right? But we don't believe that people are converted by the water, by the way. We believe they're converted by faith in the blood of Jesus. But, the, but water baptism is a point to set the conscious, conscience right. And, to, and I believe it releases freedom and blessing in our lives when we obey Jesus. There's an empowerment. But we, the pure in heart, one saint said, I want to see God. And the other saint said, no one can see God and live, as the scriptures say. He said, then let me see God and die. See, I believe the greatest motivation for living in purity is not to try to be a person that's the perfect person or to try to be a person without mixture, but is to be a person that's obsessed like Jacob was with seeking the face of God 
And because I want to behold God, and because I've gotten glimpses of his majesty and his character and his beauty, then, and when he, his glory is reflected in my life, impurities come to the surface so he can clean them and remove them. But when I've learned to regard his face and beholding him and seeing him as superior to the idols in my lives, then I'm willing to let him clean me and deal with those things and let the pressures and the fires stay because I want him more than anything else. Even if it costs me everything, I want his face. So what are the implications here that only the pure in heart see God? Is this for this life or the next? Is it a spiritual contemplation? You know, like you see God like in your heart, like, oh, it's just really good. Yeah, don't you see him? No, I don't see him, but no, you see him. Oh, is it like that? Or does it mean in the afterlife? Like you have to be pure to ever see God. Like you can't go to heaven if you're not pure in heart. What does it mean? How are we made pure? What are the implications? Some theologians would say, unless you're dealt with every single sin that you've ever committed properly and gotten perfectly purified, you can't actually see God, which means you actually can't go to heaven without. We gotta be careful not to preach a righteousness of works and self-effort because we'll fail miserably. He talks about unrighteousness. Last time we were in this message, in this series. But we also have to be careful to not belittle the importance of the necessity of purity in the believer's lives. See, some Christians are like, we, we've, we're, we're really good at reductionism right now. So, you know, the way to show that you're a Christian is to vote a certain way. Huh? There's definitely godly values that are at stake that I think we should base our vote on godly values. But we've reduced things. We've said, as long as you say this prayer before you die, you'll go to heaven. Does the Bible teach that as long as you say a prayer, you'll go to heaven before you die? Doesn't it? Doesn't actually say that. It says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it tells us that faith without works is dead. If there is no demonstration that when we've prayed a prayer that there is any transformation in our heart, it would be evil and unloving for us to give people false hope in an eternity because otherwise we could just drop leaflets from the sky, little tracks from helicopters all across America. We could get one of our pilots here to open up the rear hatch and just dump Little things, and just, as long as you say this, even if you don't believe, really, you know, just as long as you believe it for a second or a moment when you grab this, that way at the end, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. You just grab this paper and go, okay, I believe in Jesus, he died for my sins, he rose dead. All right, amen. And then you go on and live your life however you want. It's not right. It's a false hope. And so if there's no purity, if there's no growth of purity, and I believe purity is a pursuit of seeking the Lord, nobody becomes perfectly like Christ in this life, but that's our pursuit. And if there's no evidence or no fruit of purity in us, then I think we have to say, have I really been converted? And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Have I really become a follower of Christ? Am I really gonna get to be one that, that beholds God? Now I thank God though for Jesus. Because so often the Sermon on the Mount or scriptures can be taught to us like a law or a rule book, but that's not how they're taught. We gotta remember that we're with Christ on the Mount. 
that he is there with the disciples teaching them this. And it is his person and his presence in our lives that empowers us to live the beatitude lifestyle. It is absolutely impossible to separate this teaching from the teacher. Right? But very often we do that in our own mind or we do that for others. You need to do this. You need to do that. No, you need to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and you need to let Jesus, the teacher, not more than a teacher though, the Messiah, the Savior of your life, the Savior of the whole world, you need to let his power, let me tell you about Jesus for a moment. When you sit on the mount with Jesus, then he gives you his power and his life and it's the radiance of his person emanating through you. See, the message of Christianity is that none of us have a pure heart. None of us measure up to the standard of God's purity and his perfection, but when we truly acknowledge our need and we allow Jesus to come take residence in our heart, then he starts the cleaning program. He does it by his grace. It's not something that we earn. We get transformed through him, by him, for him, from him. It's all about Jesus. This is the Christian message. Have I yielded to him? Is he my God? Is he my Lord? And if there is any other idol standing in your way, turn from it. Depart from it today and cling to Jesus. Let it, the vision of Jesus consume you. Let a, Get a surpassing vision of God's greatness and let that become the motivating factor. Become like a child, the scripture says, and live in wonder at who this God is and what he's done for you. We need Jesus. He's the desire of the nations. He's the desire of every human heart. And he is the only one that can make you pure. And as any doctor or specialist is poking around to find the places of pain, I want to tell you that's what's going to happen in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount is we're going to get poked on. But it's, 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 it's to reveal what he can heal. It's to cause us to grow up and groan and say, I just need you, Jesus. And it's like those that were sitting at his feet that day that he invites us to, to come and sit at his feet and to adore him as the master. And say, Lord, I can't do this apart from you. This is hard. This is trying. You've turned up the fire in my heart and in my life. But would you come and deal with my heart? And he's so pleased to do so today. He's so pleased to reveal himself to you and to help you. And to tear down those idols, to tear out those things, to tear out those infections and those areas of compromise or rebellion that are in our lives and say, no, 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 no. And when he peels it back, it's always because he's coming to change us in his love. But let's not mistake his love for mushiness because <laughs> he will deal with those things. He will deal with those things, but it's always to show us mercy. It's always to be redemptive. It's always to make us more like him and more like the people that we're called to be. Amen? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer today? Father God, I want to thank you for your mercy and your purity of heart that you call us to. And I want to thank you for Jesus today. Because <laughs> I know I'm toast without Jesus. <laughs> like Jacob, he was toast in the scriptures until he had an encounter with you. Until he came face to face with you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that no matter where our past is, no matter what our background is, no matter what our no matter what our history is, we could come to you and we could sit at your feet and acknowledge you as Lord. Turn from our sin. Turn from our idolatrous ways. We could surrender and confess the other lovers that we've had, God, that, that have been destroying us. 
but it feels so good. Lord, culture has marred us and shaped us and caused our beliefs to be so perverted in the church. Lord, we need your mercy that we might have purity of heart, that we might return to our first love, that we might live for you without a spirit of compromise, without sin and rebellion, without thinking that we know better, without thinking that, oh, well, we're in progressive times where we're learning lots of new things. Lord, we thank you for progress and all, but we never progress beyond your truth, for that's a falsehood to actually bring us into bondage. There is no progression. If we go outside of the bounds of your truth, there is only regression and destruction, Lord. So we repent for the church. As your people, we repent for giving our affection to other loves. And we ask God that you would restore our first love. We ask that we would have a purity of heart and we welcome the fires, we welcome the trials, we welcome the things, God, that you bring, not that the evil one brings, but that you bring to purify us and to allow us to reflect Christ in a more complete and beautiful way. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're with us today. Have your way in our hearts. And I wonder if there's anybody here and you said, I've never given my life to Jesus and I realize that I don't know that I'm born again. I don't know that I'm really a disciple of Jesus. I want to make Jesus my Lord. I want to follow him as the one true God. I want to be made right with God. I want to have right standing. I want him to purify my heart from sin so that I can have everlasting life. You've never made that decision before and you want to make it now because you know that God is working in your heart. Would you just raise your hand up today so I could pray with you? Give you a Bible. We want to plug you in here. Is there anybody says, I'm not right with God, and I want to be right with God. Well, Father, I pray for your people, that you would bless them, that you would comfort them, that you would strengthen them, that you would have your way in us. Lord God, let this word produce life, Lord, not self-righteousness or vain efforts or even self-loathing, Lord, where we don't measure up, but a true conviction and con a, a true conviction that would come from your Holy Spirit that would empower us to overcome and live the life that you've called us to live. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sunrise Message of the Week. If you can think of someone in your life that needs encouragement, send them this message. Help us get the word out. We'll see you next week.